Well, good morning, officially, everybody. Um, today we are going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. How did the homework go? Did anybody have any, I don't know, anything that just jumped out at you? Something new and interesting? Was anybody like me and had to read it in the, the New Living Translation, the NIV, the NIRV, to really make sure I got it? <laughs> How about Susan? Yes, I had to do that. Okay. Um, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, the verse that most of us know is that there, there's no condemnation um, in Christ Jesus and the rest of that verse. But the, the no condemnation part is that the law can't condemn us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when it says there is no condemnation, there is no condemnation. None. Zero. Zilch. In Marty's Bible, it used, it, it used the word free and freedom different times. Mm -hmm. which, which this did not, but mm -hmm. couldn't find anyway. Yeah. And I, I, like, I like that term. Free. Free and freedom. F free and freedom. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. I like that. Well, to kind of help me wrap my mind around what we're reading today um, and what we're studying today, I decided to tell a story, a vignette, if you will. And here's my little story. So imagine for a moment that you're a cookie thief. That's who you are. You steal cookies from the cookie jar. But it's a normal thing for you to do and you really don't think that much about it. You go through life taking cookies as you want out of any and every cookie jar you find. It seems to be a great life, but I, I don't know, maybe you feel a little empty. The cookies don't seem to really fill you up anymore. And sometimes this weird thing happens. You get a glimmer at yourself in the mirror and you see that your clothes are kind of dirty. And maybe they've got holes in them, but it's whatever. It's whatever. Everybody else looks the same and everybody else does the same. Everybody's a cookie thief. Everybody. Well, one day, you meet this guy who seemed really different than all your other friends. Your heart even burned when you talked to him. He was so gentle and kind. He said, hi, my name's Jesus. And he told you in a very nice way that there was a law against stealing cookies, and it was punishable by death. Oh, my word. He even had a book to show you all the laws that you were completely oblivious to. And he told you he loved you, even though you didn't know him. And he said, stop stealing cookies and follow me. He said, trust me, because I have a better way to live. He said, I love you, and I want to save you from all the yuck in this world. And you knew you'd done some bad things in the past. I mean, stealing cookies was just who you were, but there was all kinds of other stuff behind that. But this guy was so different, and he was so loving. You believed him and you wanted to follow him. 
You told him you were sorry for stealing cookies and asked him to help you live life that better way. And he gave you a big hug and he said, welcome to the family. He was so fabulous, in fact, that he even gave you his clothes to wear on top of your filthy rags. He, he really wanted to, you really wanted to be like him, and you tried hard to live like him every day. Things seemed to be going great. You had a new friend, some snazzy new clothes, and a new way to live. But one day, you happened to walk down the street, and you smelled something amazing. Uh-oh, somebody had been baking cookies. And they looked enticing, and they smelled enticing, and, but there was a sign that said, don't steal the cookies. You're like, oh man, now I really want to steal the cookies. And, but then you remembered that breaking any of the laws or rules was punishable by death. That's what your friend Jesus had said. And he, was, he warned you. He said, don't do that. So you figure you better not steal the cookies. But man, the thought of stealing the cookies became all you could think about. You knew you weren't supposed to. Um, but look at them. They look so yummy and they're enticing and they smell so good. And... And they're just staring at you saying, I'm delicious and you know it, but ha ha ha, you can't have me because it's against the law, which makes you want them even more. You really wanted to do what's right. You really wanted to make your friend Jesus look good. And especially since you're wearing his clothes, I mean, it was branded, you know, Jesus brand. And you wanted to, you didn't want him to look bad, but those cookies were just so enticing. You knew you shouldn't do it. You didn't want to do it but you did it anyway. And so you live with guilt and shame. You hold your head down until one day, uh uh-oh, the cookie police shows up. They heard about your crime. They arrest you. They bound you with shackles. I mean, this is a pretty serious offense. They charge you with cookie theft. They hand you a bill for the stolen cookies, and you're stuck in prison. And remember, this is punishable by death. And you're brought before the judge who oversees cookie theft and everything else, actually. And he looks at you and he says, I know you're guilty as charged. I know you are. But something strange is happening here. Even though I know your name and I know you're guilty, all I see when I see you is Jesus. And maybe because those clothes are so snazzy and bright. Anyway... Jesus took care of the penalty for stealing your cookies and everything else you've ever done, too. And I talked to him about you, and he said, oh, yeah, I love her. We go way back. I knew she was going to break the rules, so I went ahead and paid all her debts and took her punishment. The judge says, so, since the cookie bill is paid and the penalty has already been taken care of, there's really no reason for you to be here. Jesus paid it all, and all to him you owe. I'm ripping up this bill. I'm crossing out all the other charges against you. You know, the lying, the cheating, the stealing, the whatever. All those murderous thoughts, that too. You are free to go. There is no condemnation for those who are wearing Jesus clothes. And so, ladies, in my mind, that is what I feel like Paul was trying to tell us last week in Romans 7, and then as we look ahead at Romans in, verse, in chapter 8 in verse 1. Those of us who have put our faith and our trust in Jesus were wearing his clothes. They cover our filthy rags. They are so bright and dazzling. There's not one bit of our sin that peeks out. We are completely covered in Jesus. And when, so that when the judge of the universe looks at us, he sees Jesus and he marks our debts paid in full. It's like you said, Joyce. 
freedom. We're free and we're freedom. And like you said, Susan, there's no condemnation. God can't condemn us. It's been paid. It doesn't exist anymore. Chapter 7 talked about how even as Christians, we still wrestle with sin in the flesh. Remember when Paul said in verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Well, I knew I wasn't supposed to eat those cookies. I wasn't supposed to steal them, but I did it anyway. And in Romans 7, um, verse 24 and 25, Paul exclaims, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have bad news. I'm wretched. We have good news. God delivers through Jesus Christ. I feel like Romans 7 describes the problem. I can't get away from my sin. I do what I hate. But I don't know that it really tells us how to live with this sin as a Christian or to live in the spirit, so to, so to speak. And guess what? Romans 8 comes to the rescue. I mean, that's how Paul follows. Like, if we can hang with Paul through all the words and all the things that he says, he eventually explains and, and gets us where we need to go. Um, Paul will explain in our passage today how the sin that we are born with and will spend a lifetime trying to escape can be and is overcome by the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So let's dive in. And pow! The first verse in Romans chapter 8 hits us with an astounding statement. Does somebody have Romans 8, 1? Do you have it, Mel? Bam. I mean, there it is. We could stop right there. That's it. There's no condemnation for those who are in, are in Jesus. Paul is giving us our legal standing or our position with God. We are free from any penalty of our sin. There are no charges against us. Our cookie bills have been, you know, ripped up. All the charges have been taken care of. This verse tells us that no matter what we've done, if we are in Christ, if we have put our faith and our trust in him and ask him to forgive us of our sin, there is no charge against us. Our debt is paid. We are free to go. Tim Keller writes, for Christians, there is no condemnation at all. It does not exist. It's not that we have moved out from under it for a while, but that it could return. No, there is no condemnation for us at all. It doesn't exist anymore. It almost like being pulled over from a police officer, knowing that you were probably going a little faster than you should have. And he looks at you and he looks and says, well, I'm not going to write you up this time. Yeah. But mm -hmm. be, careful. be careful. That's right. That's right. It's just like in my little cookie story, even though we are guilty, but because we are in the Jesus clothes, we have been delivered from freedom. We are in Christ. We have been delivered from freedom. And yes, you are guilty. I mean, we are guilty. But we have been declared free. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we know that he already paid our debt. There is no more debt to pay. It's done. It's finished. No more legal charges against you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
And you know, like I said, we could probably camp this whole lesson today just on that because there's a lot of there's a lot of life revolved around um, not believing those verses. There's a lot of things that happen in our life where we walk around feeling condemned, um, fe you know, feeling guilt and shame that God wants us to be free of. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that in our discussion groups today. Yes, ma'am. Mm. And God convicts. Yes. And so there's this different, while it's subtle, it's still, God still tells you when you're doing something wrong, but it's not, it's not in the same way that Satan does. And so you have to be careful who you're listening to. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. There's a conviction of, hey, I've done something wrong. That's God saying, okay, be careful. But we're not condemned with it. We're not bound with shackles and, you know, sent to prison, right? We are free from that. Um, so let's look at Romans, um, Romans 8, verse 2. Okay, he says it again. Your Jesus clothes have set you free. You are free. You have been given life instead of death. How about Romans, three, uh, Romans 8, verses 3 and 4? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us so here we see that the law couldn't save us but God God could save us by sending Jesus to take our penalty and stand in our place when we are in Christ when we put on those Jesus clothes and we can't take them off by the way once we put them on um, we are living according to the spirit Therefore, the righteous requirement of the law is met. There is no longer condemnation. When God, when, when, you know, think of that legal proceeding. When God, the judge, sees you stand before him, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ. Christ is like, you know, he's standing in front. He's dazzling in all his glory. Um, all he sees is Jesus. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're done. Your debt's paid. You're good. Um, and so in these verses, this is where we see this concept of living according to the flesh versus living according to the spirit. And in our passage today, Paul uses so many words to give us a picture of life in the spirit. He's basically saying there are only two kinds of people, those who live according to the flesh, those who live according to the spirit we see the word spirit mentioned 19 times in the ESV. I think it was in the ESV I counted that, 19 times. And flesh is counted 14 times. And in our homework pages there, uh, Morgan has a, a spot on there for comparison and contrast. 
And what would be the most obvious list here, things to note, to compare and contrast? Flesh and spirit. Yeah, flesh and spirit. Life in the flesh, life in the spirit. And so that's what we're going to compare and contrast today. Um, I thought it might be fun to kind of dig into what exactly we're talking about with regards to the flesh and the spirit, um, get a little more detail on that. So, you know, what is the flesh? What is the flesh? Yeah, well, I mean... Like living for yourself. It's living for yourself. I mean, the word, the, the Greek word is sarks, and in its initial context, it's the flesh. It's like the skin that's covering your body. Um, but in another context, it's more symbolic. It refers to our sinful state, where we are prone to sin and opposed to God, Includes whatever in the soul is weak, low, debased, tending to ungodliness and vice. Do you see how we're just going down, down, down? It signifies the entire nature of man, sense, and reason without the Holy Spirit. And so in our flesh, no good thing can live. No good thing can live. And so what is the Bible? So we're going to just read a couple of verses and see what the Bible says about sinful flesh. Who has Matthew 26, 41? Okay. Watch and pray that ye do not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we see here the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. How about in Romans 7, verse 5? Okay. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Sinful passions bore fruit for death? That sounds awful. How about Galatians 5.17? Okay. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit <clears throat> against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Right, so the flesh is contrary to the spirit. They're in conflict with one another. And the last one is Galatians 5, 19 to 21. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, it just gets worse. I mean, you know, okay, don't live in the flesh. Well, the flesh is weak. It's contrary to the spirit. Um, it's in conflict. Um, and then we get into all these fruits of the flesh is basically what Galatians 5, 19 to 21 is. And it's awful. It's awful. So what can we say about the flesh? It's awful. It's bad. It's deadly. It's all, you know, all those horrible things. Um, well, what about the spirit? So it's the Greek word pneuma. And it means, it's, it represents the Holy Spirit. It's the third person of the triune God, co-equal, co-eternal 
with the Father and the Son. And I had, when I first was writing this, I had this whole, like, you know, Bible commentary list of all the things of the Spirit. And I'm like, okay, I am not going to be Paul. I'm going to simplify this, and I'm going to go to a Jeremy Camp song, and I'm going to give it to give it to you this way. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power that commands the dead to wake, lives in us. The same power that moves mountains when he speaks, the same power that can calm a raging sea, lives in us. That is the spirit that he is talking about. It can move mountains, it raises from the dead, um, it speaks to us, all of these things. Um, and that is the Holy Spirit. And I feel like, like when we were talking about the flesh, we would start here, and then we're going down, down, down. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And then you talk about the Spirit, and you start in the same place. And the more you hear about it, it's like, oh, oh, this is great. It's getting better. Oh, look, this is wonderful. And so let's read some verses about the Spirit. Um, John fourteen sixteen. Did I give that to somebody? Maybe I didn't. I can read it. I can read it then. Um, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So this Holy Spirit teaches us and brings to mind the things that Jesus has said. I mean, how many times have you been struggling with something and the, and the words of God just comes into your mind, like a Bible verse or something. I mean, Pastor Matt talked about it on, on Sunday. Um, that is the Holy Spirit. That's what he does for us. Um, how about Matthew 10, 19 to 20? Okay, maybe I, maybe I skipped a bunch. Okay, my list could have been this long, apparently, with Bible verses. Let me do this one. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. How about Isaiah eleven two? I mean, that's just beautiful. The Spirit of the Lord rests on us. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. I mean, those are beautiful things. What was that verse, Isaiah? Isaiah 11, verse 2. How about Romans 5, 5? And so his love is poured out in our hearts. That's the Holy Spirit, God's love in our hearts. Um, Galatians 5.22. Did I not? I, I, I really messed up here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Again, it just gets better and better. Love, joy, peace, patience. Like, woo, these are so good. So good. 
And so these verses give us an idea about what the Holy Spirit does and what kind of things are associated with it. It teaches us, it speaks to us, it fills us. Through it, God's love pours out on us. The fruit of the Spirit brings love and joy and peace and all those great things. And so you've got this conflict, the flesh and the Spirit. And we read that list of awful things that you get when you're in the flesh. And then we've got those beautiful things for the Spirit. Like, which one do you want? You know, which one do you want? Maybe you're not convinced. And I'm guessing Paul thinks we're not convinced because he's going to talk about it even more. Like, again, we could just stop it right there. But no, Paul's going to go into it some more. So he's got some more verses to share with us. How about Romans 9, 5 to 8? the wrong verse unless Morgan you can come up with some good like (laughs) I know I know and I have it wrong right here too it's supposed to be Romans 8 I'm sorry unless you can unless it was like a divine mix-up and there was something in there that's related that you could pull out (laughs) I was like I was like what translation is she reading I'm going oh and then I look and I'm like oh I had it I wrote it wrong in my notes I'm sorry can you can you read devil sorry Romans 8 5 to 8 So we hear it again. Here we go. Verse 5. Mindset on the flesh versus mindset on the spirit. Again, we have two types of people, two types of minds, two ways to live. Paul is contrasting the saved, those who live in the spirit, versus the unsaved, those who live in the flesh. And what do we learn about minds that are living in the flesh? What does it say in verse 6 about a mind that is governed by the flesh? What is it? Death. Death. What does it say in verse 7? Hostile Hostile to God. Yes, it does not submit to God's law. And, And notice it says it cannot submit to God's law. Verse 8. What does it say? Cannot please God. Yikes. And what about those who are governed by the Spirit? The ones who are governed by the Spirit. What does it say about that in these verses? They have life and peace. They have life and peace. Their minds are focused on what the Spirit desires. Would it be a stretch to say that the mind is drawn towards the fruit of the Spirit? 
If you live according, according to the Spirit, mm -hmm. is your mind more drawn to love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness? Da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. Yep. One of the things I actually find kind of comforting in these verses about the unsaved, those who are not in Christ, is that we shouldn't have any expectation of them that they live godly lives. I mean, it says right here they can't do it. They can't please God. It doesn't mean they can't do nice things sometimes. In fact, some of the most moral people I know, um, have they don't want anything to do with Jesus. Um, but they, can't, they cannot submit to their law and bless their hearts. I mean, they just can't do it. They can't do it. So why do I get all upset when a pagan acts like a pagan? I mean, sinners are going to sin. And when I put my expectations on them to always do what's right and to always, you know, like live the way they're supposed to live, well, I'm just bound for being upset. They can't do it. They cannot please God. Warren Wiersbe says, the unsaved person does not have the Spirit of God and lives in the flesh and for the flesh. His mind is centered on the things that satisfy the flesh, but the Christian has the Spirit of God within, within and lives in an entirely new and different sphere. His mind is fixed on things of the Spirit. This does not mean that the unsaved person never does anything good or that the believer never does anything bad. It means that the bent of their lives is different. One lives for the flesh. The other lives for the Spirit. So you have two bends. You have two bends, two ways to live. Life, death. Again, which one do you want? <clears throat> we have a choice. Mm-hmm. Three choice. You come to the fork in the road, take one. Mm -hmm. Yep. Which way? Which bend? Which bend do you want? Um, how about Romans 8, 9 to 11? So in verse 9, Paul is reminding the Romans that they are in the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in them. And if the Spirit of God is in them, they belong to Christ. So if the Spirit of God is in you, you are wearing Jesus' clothes. They cover you. I think I imagine like a big white, dazzling uh, sweatsuit, you know? <laughs> you know, it's just dazzling. That's kind of what I imagine with a hoodie, you know, because so it covers everything, right? That's kind of what I imagine. Um, the word in verse 9, which is translated as lives or dwells, it is the Greek word okeo. And according to John MacArthur, this word has the idea of being in one's home. He said, in a marvelous and incomprehensible way, the very Spirit of God makes his home in the life of every person who trusts Jesus Christ. Well, how do you know if the Spirit of God lives in you and makes his home there? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that we should test ourselves. And how do you do that? 
Well, I think you just asked yourself, do you see the Spirit leading you? Do you desire the things of God or do you desire the things of the world? Do you want to avoid sin or do you just want to avoid getting caught? Making sure your hand isn't in the cookie jar when the cookie police come along. And so again, we're comparing and we're contrasting the realm of the Spirit in Christ. The Holy Spirit makes His home in you or the realm of the flesh. You're not in Christ. And then Paul in verse 10 gives us some good news on what is in store for those who are in Christ. What's in store? Look in verse 10. What does it say? Righteousness. Li yeah, we have life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's Christ righteousness, yeah. Um, so though our physical bodies are going to die, we are going to live. And verse 11, that's that, that's that Jeremy Camp song, right? Um, the same, if the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in you, then the power to give you life over death is in you. That's some mighty fine power right there. In the world. Amen. That is so true. I, um, I looked up Romans 8.11 in the message. Um, the message is a paraphrase. Um, I would not necessarily take the message as your study of the Word of God, but it is sometimes interesting and helps, to, especially in Romans, to kind of get a different perspective. But I really liked how Eugene Peterson did um, Romans 8.11. He said, It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, He'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ. So ladies, don't tell me that you can't have victory over whatever sin you're struggling with, whatever it is. Paul is telling us that we can be as alive as Christ. We can be delivered. That same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. You can have victory. You can have victory. Who's got Romans 8, 12 to 13? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great illustration. Okay. Twelve and thirteen. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit 
you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here Paul is drawing a conclusion. He's saying, look, people, you are alive in Christ. You live in the Spirit, and the Spirit lives in you. You have an obligation. The NIV says, instead of saying we have a debt, the NIV says we have an obligation, therefore, to live according to the Spirit. You are no longer captives to the flesh. You have the power to overcome the flesh. John MacArthur says, by the power of the Spirit who dwells in us, Christians are able successfully to resist and destroy sin in their lives. And as if we still didn't get the comparison and the contrast, we have it again. Live according to the flesh equals what? Death. <laughs> Live according to the Spirit, what? Life. Phew, I think we got it, hopefully. And then as we conclude the, pa the passage, we get some good news, mostly only good news this time, hopefully. Um, who has Romans 8, 14 to 17? Oh, Marta. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom you cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. As children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I just love this. I'm all about identity and who we are in Christ. And this passage gives us some ideas about who we are. Um, in verse 14, to be led here, in this passage has the connotations of being led willingly by the Spirit. Wearsby says, we yield to the Spirit and He guides us by His Word day by day. We are not under bondage to the law and afraid to act. And so, what do these verses tell us about ourselves, those who are led by the Spirit? What does it say in verse 14? Or children of God, if we want to be, you know, gender inclusive. Um, we are daughters of God. And who is God? The creator, the most high, the king of kings. We are precious children of God. What does it say about in verse 15? What can we have or what, you know, how can we, yeah, how do we, we don't have to live in what? Fear. fear. No fear. We've been adopted. I love adoption. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. We're adopted. It's like God looks out there and goes, I think I'll take this one and this one and this one and come and I'm going to hug you and love you and you're going to be mine forever. That's beautiful. Adoption is beautiful. And then if we are adopted as children, then what does that mean in verse 16? What does it say? We are his heirs. Like, we're not adopted and treated differently. That's not adoption. I mean, that's like, I don't know, maybe you just buy a kid or something. If, it's, if those children are not treated as equals, then it's, it's not really adoption. 
Adoption is we are we are heirs. We have the full, um, you know, whatever whatever you get by being a part of this family, it is available to you. And co-heirs with Christ. Wow, that's pretty spectacular. That we would be in any way, shape, or form at the same like to be able to say co anything with Christ. That's amazing. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. So I said it was mostly good news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was mostly good news. Um, and there's an inheritance. There's an inheritance. Yes. Yes, there's an inheritance. It's waiting on us and it's not perishable. Did we learn that last week? Did we talk about it? I, That seems that's fresh in my mind about having an inheritance that is imperishable. So what does it look like to have the Spirit of God dwelling in us? What are some of the signs? Well, one, we yield to the Spirit. We don't live in fear like slaves. Not only do we cry out to our Abba Father. I mean, that's a term of endearment. We cry out Abba Father. But the Spirit, did you, know, did you catch that? The Spirit also testifies that we are God's children as well. The Spirit's out there going, this one's mine, and that's mine, and she's mine, and these are all my kids right here. They're all my kids. But also, having the Spirit of God dwelling in us means that we are willing to share in the sufferings of Christ. And we, and we know that we don't suffer for the sake of suffering. We know that what is it? Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, character, hope. I don't know. I have them out of order, but there is purpose. If we are suffering, if we are willing to participate in the sufferings of Christ, then there is great purpose um, in that. So it does take perseverance. Yeah. But the spirit of God is living in you and he can give you that perseverance. So, um, in conclusion, finally getting to the end of this, we can see that in Romans 8, 1 to 17, Paul is trying to show us two ways to live. And he has told us so many different ways and so many different times. I mean, he could have said it probably in three sentences, but he took 17 verses to tell us how to live in the Spirit with God. He he, He contrasts How did we live in the spirit versus life in the flesh without him? He gives us all kinds of words and comparisons to show us what living in the spirit should look like. And I like this kind of practical summary from John MacArthur. He says, being controlled by God's spirit comes from being obedient to his word. The spirit-filled life does not come through mystical or ecstatic experiences, but from studying and submitting oneself to Scripture. As a believer faithfully and submissively saturates his mind and heart with God's truth, his spirit-controlled behavior will follow as surely as night follows day. When we are filled with God's truth and led by his spirit, even our involuntary reactions, those that happen when we don't have time to consciously decide what to do or say, will be godly. So fear not, dear ones. There is hope for us wretched men or women, as we are, as Paul stated. We can have life in the spirit rather than death in the flesh. 
and Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the power that our sinful fleshly nature, he delivers us from that by giving us this life in the spirit. And so let his spirit and his word guide you each and every day.